Ladies and gentlemen, it is time. Is it that time already? It's that time. It's about that time. For the one and only. It's time for the JoYo Podcast. How we doing, What's man? Going on? <laughs> Surviving every day. Surviving. <laughs> you do. You do. You've always been a survivor. I'll tell you that. That should be your theme song, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? How's Arizona treating you these days? Uh, oh God, it's getting hot, man. It's starting to get that time of year that I can't stand. I'm gonna start getting grumpy. I'm gonna get real <laughs> grumpy. This was me last year, man. All I was doing was complaining about the heat. It was like, what was I thinking coming back here? Oh no, I love but, it. I miss it. Yeah? Yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a tropical person. I've always liked the heat. It didn't matter if I was in Miami and it was super humid or if I was in Arizona and it was just hundred and ten degrees but dry. Like I'm all about I just love the sun. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, it's it's that Puerto Rican in you, man. That's that's what it is. I know. <laughs> I'm so upset about like my prospects of hitting like a beach or anything this summer. It's pretty much like non-existent at this point i'm gonna be translucent come next year (laughs) no look at me look you can see me right now i'm glowing okay you're good trust me you are good but you're you're still in uh you're dc right no 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 no. so i'm actually still in new york you're still Um, in new york okay i wanted to move to dc last year that's right um, but then i got a really good job opportunity and one of the reasons why I wanted to initially practice in New York is because I went to law school in New York and my law school that I went to is not, unfortunately we have so many law schools in New York and a lot of them are very top tier because they've been around for a long period. Sure. Mine is one of the newer law schools. So I, it doesn't have that same name recognition that you would get from an NYU or a Columbia okay, or Fordham yeah. Law. You know, those are the ones that you've seen in pop culture or whatever like that. Yep. So it was better for me to practice in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, because there's at least the alumni network here. There's name recognition locally for my law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and in New York, in most states, um, but specifically in New York, the first two years that you practice as a new attorney, um, I can't remember the exact term that they use, but it's like almost like probationary type deal. So your requirements as far as like continuing learning education and reporting and all that kind of stuff is much more stringent in the first two years. And then after that, it starts to subside. And for a lot of states once you've practiced five years um in a particular state you have a better chance of what they call reciprocity which is like i could wave into another state and practice there without having to sit for their bar exam Mm -hmm. so being that um i got this really good job opportunity and at that point i was about 2020 so that's 20 so three years in to uh the my practice i said you know what let me go ahead and just stay for the additional two one to two uh you know assuming everything was good with the firm um that way i can like make my five-year mark um and then 
well, I can always transfer um, or wave into DC because I scored high enough on my bar exam to be able to enter into DC without having to take the exam for them again. Um, okay. This will just open me up to if I want to get waived into Virginia or Maryland, you know, the surrounding states. Right, right, right. DC right. is so small, even though so much law takes place there because it's federal. Yeah. But, you know, if I if I wanted to practice and, and have a dual license with Maryland or Virginia, I'm better off being uh, in currently under practice for five years or more in New York. Gotcha. So, you, so you, you're almost there. Though. You got, what, a couple more years to go? A few yeah, more? Yeah, I graduated. Um, I, I graduated in 2016 and I became barred in 2016. So nice. essentially... Um, July of 2021 would be my fifth year. Just about there. Keep it going. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Yeah. And but, I got, I, they gave me a lot of money. So like, let <laughs> that, me, that helps. Let, that that certainly helps. Stay. Let me kind of, you know, pay down some bills. Stack there you up go. Savings. There that you go. When I relocate, you know, I'm comfortable. And then if, I, if I'm not moving with, already having a job you know yeah this will hopefully give me the financial freedom to move and not have to be concerned with that absolutely time to look around and mm-hmm. stuff, so. i hear that man um i gotta i gotta ask you so for those who don't know so me and my buddy liz here wow we've <laughs> we've been friends we've known each other for quite some time oh um gosh. unfortunately we didn't get, we don't get to see each other that much uh you know it's life man but i get that but mm-hmm. One of the things that I knew from you, you're, you, were a, you were such a wild child, and we won't get into all that jazz, <laughs> but what I will say is I was kind of, I mean, I was extremely proud, but also shocked that you decided to practice law. I was like, no way, this girl's going to be a lawyer. So I got to know, man, I, I got to ask you, what, what made you choose law? Like, what was it that drew you to it? So it actually wasn't law in and of itself at all. Okay. Um, so after high school, I took about a five-year hiatus from college. And not to say that I didn't make attempts. Like, I tried to go to college right out of high school, and I ended up, like, dropping almost all my classes because yeah. I couldn't peel myself out of the student union. Like, I'm a social butterfly, so I just <laughs> want to hang out with people. Um, you know, I and feel that. that that freedom and, and, and not, you know, not being under the constraints that you're used to in public school as far as high school and everything's concerned. It, yeah. it just, it took, it took me a second to get adjusted. So um, when I did decide to go to back to school, um, at the time I was working at Wells Fargo Home Mortgage and it was 2005. So we were just starting to, hit that real estate burst of the bubble where a lot of uh, institutions were doing like predatory practices. They were um, signing people up for mortgages that they technically didn't qualify for. And so then people were going into foreclosure two or three years later down the road when they couldn't pay the bill. Um, And my department got downsized. And prior to my department getting downsized, I just sort of like looked around one day and I was like, you know, every year that I had worked, I'd been there for about maybe three years. Every year that I'd worked there, I'd been promoted and promoted. And like, I was moving up in the ranks really quickly. Um, But I was 
getting to the point where it was going to start to hit the ceiling. And the ceiling wouldn't have been bad. It would have been like an underwriter or senior underwriter position. Right. Um, and would have made, in my mind at that time, you know, decent, decent salary. To right. Well, you're young. Like anytime you're in that young position, you start to get any kind of real money. You're like, oh, wow, this is a lot. And exactly. You're like, mm, is it though? <laughs> but I looked at the underwriters that I was working with and they were just all so miserable. Oh, and like, yeah. they came in and they did their job and they were good at it, but they were miserable. And I was like, I want more for myself. Than yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Um, so in trying to sort of hone in as to like what it was I wanted to be, because I had already gone through a good like four or five different career changes in my mind while I was still trying to find myself. Um, Trust someone, me, I feel you there. <laughs> yeah, someone pointed out to me that I was really good at like instructing people. Um, like whenever I had like we had a new employee and I had to train them on stuff or whatever like that, I was really good at instructing people. So they were like, you know, you should consider teaching. And I was like, I could see that. I okay. could totally see that. But I also know that I'm not of the temperament to deal with like elementary school children right yeah I feel that Um, yeah I felt that like if I was going to be a teacher I wanted to teach junior high high school maybe eventually college I needed them to be older because I felt that there is just a level of maturity and also a level of accountability like like when the kids are young the kids could be brats, but like the parents are like, this is my baby. It's my precious angel. And the kids are like 15 and 16. They're like, do whatever you got to do to get my kid to graduate. Like they kind of come around. Right. And I think more so now than ever with all these parents having to teach their, you know, do homeschooling yeah. during, during the COVID pandemic, they're realizing teaching is not as easy as they may have thought. Right. Anyways, um, to be a secondary education teacher, you have to pick a subject. You know, like, you know, when you're in elementary school, your teacher teaches everything. But when you're in junior high and high school, you have different teachers for specific subjects. So I had to kind of figure out what would be my sub. What do I care about enough to like learn how to teach to others? Yeah. Um, And I decided that I wanted to teach Spanish. Of course. There you go. I actually was a Spanish speaker natively. But when I started going to school when I was young, I lost a lot of it. So by the time that I was going back to college, I understood it, but I I didn't speak it well as far as grammatically was concerned. I Mm -hmm. I confused my feminine and masculine and all the different uh, versions of the the verb. And I just knew that if I was going to teach it, I would have to master it. So it was almost self-serving because I wanted to be good at Spanish. Sure. So like, I'm going to have to learn to be good at Spanish, good enough to be able to teach it to someone else. There you go. And um, essentially in my like education 101 course, we were talking about the curriculums that were in place. And at that time, um, Bush was in office and they were pushing the whole no child left behind. And Mm, we had started to take out like the arts and the music and stuff and really hone in on reading, writing, math, standardized testing, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Yep. And it it really went against my teaching philosophy. Um Mm. there's like a bunch of them 
that, you know, different teachers will swear by. But the one that I think really spoke to me was one that says that as an individual, we all have these, like, I believe it's eight different intelligences. Okay. Um, and everyone has it in different levels. So, you right. know, athletes have the kinetic intelligence. They have this, the, the know-how, how to, like, you show them something and they're able to replicate it and they are able to like be in tune with their body and their muscles dancers, Mm -hmm. you know, um, mathematicians have the, the space and logic, you know, until they they break it all down. Gotcha. So to me, I just felt like if you're focusing on reading and writing and and math only, there's so many other intelligences that a a child might have, in abundance and they may right. not be so so high on these others and without giving them the opportunity to explore that with the music class or a sports right, yeah. program or whatever their sense of self-worth is relegated to how well they do on a standardized test and that may, yeah. may not be their, their exactly forte. there's a it almost seems kind of counterintuitive when you think about the name like no child left behind but then whenever mm-hmm you implement certain things that only specify certain areas, you're inherently then leaving other children behind. Children behind. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I talked to my, te- my teacher at the time, cause I really, I don't know. I felt like a calling is like something just stirred in me. It didn't feel right. And I was like, what does a person have to do to be in a position to be able to influence this type of curriculum? Because sure. As a teacher, I can select the, you know, within the limits of whatever school district I work, I could select the curriculum that I, I use to teach our students. I can implement other stuff and I could have an effect. Let's say I have, you know, 30 students in a class, five classes in a day. So I can affect, you know, the lives of up to 150 students mm-hmm. every year. Yep. Or I could be one of the voices that's speaking for how curriculum is formatted and evaluated at a national level. And I could be affecting how children all across the nation learn. And for me, yeah, the 150 was great, but I wanted to be a <laughs> she's, she, she's going big. I want, I want the yeah. jackpot. There you go. <laughs> go bear, go home. So right. she said that in order for me to be in that position, I would need to graduate um obviously you know with a degree in education Mm -hmm. um i would likely need to get a master's degree in um, higher administration or policy uh something of that nature and then i would need to get a law degree because education is both state-based and federal and depending on how it was I was going to be navigating that I would need to understand the legal ramifications and what's what's regulatory what's statutory etc yeah and me being the overachiever that I am (laughs) happened to come across this like dual master's JD program that would give you your law degree and your master's in higher education policy at Harvard Law. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> wow. I decided I'm going to Harvard Law. And then 
fast forward to 2010 and I graduated with my uh, degree and I was like, I'm not going to Harvard. Yeah, yeah, that that Uh, sounds a bit ambitious. (laughs) Very, very for for being, especially for being like late, late in the game. Because again, I took five years off, so I'm graduating at you know 28. People are graduating at like 24, 22. Yeah, I feel um, that man. I'm graduating right now at 34. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, oh, this might be, maybe I should tone it down. So yeah. in that time, I left Arizona. I moved to Miami. I finished my bachelor's degree in Miami. And then I moved back to New York. Um, and I had a year to study for the LSATs. And during that year, I was working human resources um, at our local hospital in the Bronx. And I realized that the same sort of policy stuff that I was drawn to from an education aspect, I was also drawn to from an employment law aspect. Okay. And policies that affect employment law, like also of, could affect potentially the nation. Yeah. Um, and so I decided that I would study, so figure out a way to study both, or you know, at some point I'd have to choose between education law and employment law and it just so happened that because I was a night student and I didn't have access to um, a lot of our day courses I was limited in the courses that I could take and there were more employment law courses offered at night than there was for education education law was actually never offered at night so I never got the opportunity to take that mm-hmm. course yeah um, and I just decided that I, I had already spent so much time I didn't want to spend more waiting for it to eventually come around to the night track so I just put myself on the employment law track and I graduated in 2016 and I've been doing employment law ever since wow that's crazy that's a hell of a story um, I know I li- I like it though I really do I'm like I'm I'm right on board with that because like I said I- I'm graduating and I'm already looking at what I would want to do now uh, I'm pl- I actually have to get a job now I'm applying and I'm like ah now I got to make money so I'm doing that but um, that's I-, I love it though uh, that you went for it and you did it um, all of us that know you though we're like oh yeah she'll be fine she's good yeah <laughs> she's she's gonna be good but. As far as now that you've been doing it for a few years, um, mm-hmm. like what have you seen? You know, what what have you like all of this that you were seeing in school that that made you want to do it? Um, mm-hmm. Now that you're practicing it, what what has there been a change? Like, okay, are you seeing a little bit more and kind of understanding, or what has that been like? That shift from student to now you're practicing. Well, you know, I think one of the benefits I had was in my last year of law school, uh, the, the semester prior, I applied and got selected for a new program that they had just started the year prior. So I was the second class of this uh, new program. It was called um, the Pro Bono Honors Program. And essentially, if you were going into your last year of law school and you had kept you know, a high GPA, um, throughout your law 
degree and you were only at this point looking to like take courses to satisfy the number of credits you needed to graduate because all of your main courses that are required had already been done or would be done in the first semester of your last year. Right. Then um, the program allowed us to essentially substitute our last semester of law school for like student attorney work. Yeah. So, and, and one of the benefits of that program was that I actually got to sit for the bar exam before I graduated, which is not oh, okay. something that was heard of beforehand. Normally you had to have graduated, have your, your diploma, and then you study and for then the bar you take exam the, yeah. and you take it. Yeah, I know that I, much. I do know that yeah. much. <laughs> so I actually finished my last, my, my first semester of my last year um, in December and then immediately went into bar prep. Mm, okay. Prepped for the bar exam, took it at the end of February, mm. which was, you know, our, our second semester had already started right, at yeah. that point. But mm -hmm. we're doing we're 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 out of that. We're doing bar prep, and then as soon as we sit for the bar, afterwards we report at wherever our pro bono location is that we've been assigned to. We have to select one, uh, go interview, have them select us back um, as a pro bono scholar, yeah. and then we had to complete 500 hours of pro bono legal work. Um, in that capacity in order to receive the last 12 credits or whatever, however number of credits you were going to get in your spring semester. Yeah. Um, but the beauty for me was that like, I, I got to walk across the graduation stage knowing I had already passed the bar exam. Nice. So That's everyone a... else is going in, you know, yeah. like, this is great. But now I know that I'm going to have like <laughs> one weekend of like, blackout parties. And then I have to like focus and I'm like, no, I can party all summer long. I'm good. <laughs> Um, that's gotta so be a great bono, feeling like no joke it was so good it was yeah. such a good feeling um <laughs> my pro bono was with the veterans assistance project at the city bar justice center of new york mm. and their mission is to assign attorneys from these big like corporate big name lawyers that that the firms like they set these quotas of doing X amount of pro bono work every year so yeah. that, you know, for their tax cuts. And so they look good, like they're giving back and everything. Um, so we would get attorneys from these big firms and we would match them up with veterans who had been denied their disability benefits. We would right. have to vet them first. So we'd yeah. call them. We'd, we'd go through a whole intake where we'd figure out, you know, what their injuries are or their disease or their symptoms, whatever the case is, when they served, all this information, what their discharge status was, everything. And if they met the criteria and if they were a good candidate, then we would match them with an attorney so that they could have their disability application done properly with legal assistance because unfortunately for a yeah. lot of them uh they're either doing it alone or they're doing it through like vfws or different types of like veteran third party type that, things yeah that aren't attorneys yeah. um and there's just a lot of misinformation out there 
Um, the biggest one being that like, if you just keep applying, eventually you'll get it. Yeah. But if you're sending in the exact same application and there's something wrong in that, yeah. no matter if you send it a hundred or a thousand times, it's going to keep getting denied. Yeah. So like what we would tell them is like, listen, like we can't change the procedure, you know, the, yep. the government is the government. They're going to do what they do in the time yeah. that they do it. But we can have it so that you only have to go through this once and you're either oh, yeah. going to get the benefits at the end of this, or you're going to get information as to why you don't qualify and something at least to whatever the next thing is or get yeah. you off the hamster wheel. Otherwise you're just <laughs> running and running and running and you're not going anywhere. Exactly. Um, and, and you know, some of it was two parts. Some of it was like, Hey, before we can even apply for the disability benefits, we have to fix your discharge status because these are two separate entities. Yeah. One that handles the discharge status, one that handles your, your benefits through the VA and they don't necessarily communicate so there's certain discharge statuses that sound like they're good, but they don't qualify. And yeah. so like there was all kinds of stuff. So I did that. And um, in doing that for my 500 years, or for years, it's, it felt like years, 500 <laughs> hours of uh, pro bono work. Um, yeah. It was so, I don't know. It was just like, no matter how much work there was, it didn't feel like work. Mm. Cause like I was so happy to be helping the population that I was helping. I mean, I'm coming yeah. from a veteran family. My father served, my uncle served, my cousin served, my best friend served. Like, yeah. Every time I'm looking at them, I'm seeing them, you know? So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. for me, it was, it was great. I would go to the VA hospitals and, and, and recruit and get information and, and it was fine. Then when it came time to actually get a job, unfortunately, um, the reality is that these types of organizations that do this work, they have to be doing it out of someplace other than financial prosperity because it's not there. Yeah. The, the money that uh, I was being offered to do similar work as what they would call a staff attorney yeah. um, was less than the money I had made before I graduated law school in a human resources assistant position, which was oh, mind boggling. Wow. Yeah, I that's was like, crazy. How is that even, like, I was making more without a, like a, a JD is essentially a doctorate degree. It's a yeah. jurist doctor. It's, yeah. it's like a PhD. So you're telling me that like, after having spent all this time and year in, in school and, and gaining all this knowledge and know-how, like this is what my work product is worth. Like it was yeah. really hard. So I turned it down. Um, and eventually got into workers' compensation law, which is like a subset of employment law. Um, mm -hmm. And I love the regulatory aspect of it. It goes back to like my whole policy stuff. Um, but it's, it's definitely not a long term for me because I don't have that same connection to the clients I'm representing. Now I'm representing insurance carriers and employers, oh, self-insured okay. employers. Yeah. Um, and I am, while, while it speaks to my morality, because I want to ensure that injured employees are getting the care that they need. And also that 
non-injured employees are not taking advantage of the system. Right. Um, when your eyes are opened to what it actually is, it feels like it's really just a machine that is found a lucrative way to get easy money. And yeah. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that, you know, it might be a better benefit for my insurance carrier to just settle this claim for five or $10,000 as opposed to litigate it. But I know that I'm principal. This person shouldn't be getting a dime. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have to I have to be in the position of what is in the best interest of the insurance carrier but it's it's really I wrestle with that because I also think like this person gets that money they tell somebody else and now we've got two more people coming trying to pull the same thing right meanwhile here's this individual who was really hurt but because insurance carriers are taken advantage of all the time now they question everyone. Now they doubt everyone. So this person is really hurt and yeah. is not getting money and not getting the treatment they need right away because the insurance carrier wants to make sure that all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted and that you really injured yourself before they start handing out checks. Yep. And that makes sense. I mean, it's their money. It's it. I get that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like that. It's like those moments when you're like a, the kid in, in elementary school and that one kid has got to mess it up for everybody else is now they can't go out and play on the re you know, for recess and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I don't want to jump the gun with this, but like, well, you were already mentioning that you, you gotta, you wrestle with the fact that like, well, this guy doesn't deserve money. And well, this guy actually does. And we're mm-hmm. giving him a hard time and we're settling this. What, what does that do to your psyche? Uh, you know, when you, when you start to get caught up into something like that, because one of the things, whenever I try to read up on, on things like that, that happen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my head just gets lost in the clouds. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know the verbiage. I don't know what this person or that is doing. It, it just seems like all hearsay. So whenever you are actually practicing this, you are taking this case and you're actually seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that do to you mentally? You know, like uh, you, uh, before, we, before we started, you said that you were just stressed out and everything. So yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's happens? hard because I, I am naturally a very passionate person. And yeah. when I believe in what it is that I'm fighting for or arguing about, you, it, you see that it comes out. But yeah. when I'm detached mentally and emotionally from what's going on because you know you wrestle with the well this is an insurance company that's got millions and billions of dollars and decide like what's this five thousand dollar claim versus like me just knowing in my bones that this is not right and this person shouldn't be getting yeah anything um it it sucks it's hard It, it becomes really draining it's hard to stay focus it's hard to give like 110% to the work that I do yeah um which then affects me because 
I have hard you want to it. you're like I and want I, yeah, to get like this, this and yeah this yeah. This, yeah. this reflects me this is my name is on this this is my reputation exactly um but you know there's days where I'm at a hundred percent and there's days where I am giving you the bare minimum I need to slide by to make it to the weekend yeah just to get like a breather um which is why I say that I don't feel that this is long term for me I don't think I I could do it I don't think I'd have the longevity my ultimate goal would be to um make my way back into uh veterans law practice I right. found that that was yeah. something that really spoke to me um and I really it didn't feel like it was work even though it was work and it was tedious because I I knew what the end result was and what I was trying to do for this individual um yeah so that's part of the reason why I would like to eventually relocate to DC I mean there's just so much that happens in DC that involves the VA um and the veterans um BBA Veterans Board of Appeal I believe it, it is um that here's like when the application gets denied at a regional office and then the attorney who put in the application files an appeal it goes before like a national uh, it goes for like a regional director and then it goes before the board I would eventually like to either be arguing before that board or perhaps even working for them helping them to make those decisions nice. of yeah. which ones are you know yes and like no because it's essentially what I'm doing now <laughs> I'm, I'm literally looking at someone's injury or someone's uh, disease or whatever like that. Uh, I'm trying to find the nexus or how it's connected to their work, which for veterans it would have been, how is it service connected? Exactly. Um, And I'm making sure that the medical and the information, everything is there to support their contentions. And as long as they meet the necessary burdens, then it's fine. If they don't, they don't. Um, so I think that if I was doing that with veterans in mind, I feel like I would be doing more than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. That sounds awesome, man. Um, cause I do know for a fact, I, I've been lucky. I, I haven't had to deal with a lot of, uh, issues, uh, since my separation, uh, my dealings with the VA have been fairly easy i haven't had any Mm -hmm. issues um but i do also know that that's not always the case um and it's it's rough though because i mean anybody any anyone that i've talked to at the va i mean they're great people like there's it's it's i don't really think it's anything to do with them and and as veterans i mean we shit on the va all the time we really do i know i know (laughs) And, and you're right it's not it's not it's not dumb. It's a lack of funding. It's a lack of resources. It's a lack of exactly. staffing. It's, it's, it's everything. I, I, I totally get it. Yeah, but absolutely. But it sucks for the people that can't even get in there uh, yep. and get the treatment that they need mm-hmm. because of, you know, some red tape. There's something somewhere that, you know, we haven't been able to connect this and that, and they didn't know that they have a right to request, uh, you know, their service jacket, their record. They have a right to request their discharge papers they have a right to contest their discharge if it were you yeah know, 
dishonorably or less than honorably or whatever like that. And, mm-hmm. and, and these are things that matter. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's so many times that you see that you hear about it. Um, and, and I even try to think, I'm like, I don't even know what I could do. Um, because one of the things that I can't stand and I don't know, and it's hard to tell, but I hate driving around, getting to a corner and seeing someone holding up a sign mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm a Vietnam vet, I'm a vet. I'm like, Oh, I don't mm-hmm. want to see that. Oh, I hate seeing that. Um, and you just kind of wonder what happened. I mean, everybody's got their own story and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I absolutely love hearing that you have this passion. I, I wish more people had that kind of passion. Uh, me personally, coming from my own perspective, is I, I'd rather you help a veteran than to thank me for my service. Mm-hmm. You don't, don't thank me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean... I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm all right. Um, and, and I won't speak for any other, uh, buddies of mine, but there, a lot of us, there's a few that are like, I don't need you to thank me. You know, you need to thank somebody that fought in world war two. You need to thank somebody that fought in Vietnam or Korea or somewhere like that. Somebody who's actually seen some real battle. Um, like I know guy, I, I know a few guys, they got, they've, they've literally been blown up. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, so. when I, I mean, when I was doing the pro bono stuff, we were um, coming off of definitely coming off of, of World War Two at this point. We were getting maybe the mid to tail end of Vietnam issues. But yeah. we were starting to see the increase, you know, because a lot of times it's has, you know, it's not something that happens right away. You know, if you're injured right away, then it's pretty obvious and like not the kind of cases that get denied. The cases that get denied are the ones that didn't come up for a while. So we were seeing the desert storm. There, yes. yeah. You know, yeah. those were the ones that were starting. They were, you know, they had been enough years that had passed that things were starting to creep up that could might definitely are you know depending on their each scenario connected to their service um and and those were a lot of the denials that we were starting to see and you know you figure give it another five ten years you know people start you'll start to see the the vets that were in afghanistan yep and so you know so it's just whatever the next thing is yeah, Desert Storm. A lot of people. I, I mean, I even forget about that. Um, and that was a bad one. That was really bad uh, when they uh, when they lit those oil fields up, and those guys mm-hmm. had to wear those gas masks. I can only imagine what it's like. I, I, I my my own mother. You know, she had to. Uh, she was never deployed in a situation like that, but she just described to me that she had to qualify shooting uh, the rifle. Mm-hmm with a gas mask on and she was like it was the absolute worst thing ever just to qualify just to actually practice wearing that thing and Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine what it's like to actually live through those kinds of conditions and come back and exactly and and it's the the process which i'm glad this you know people in your position are there because the process is extremely convoluted it's so crazy how many different systems are involved paperwork Mm -hmm. going here paperwork going there and it's i even i was 
when I got out, I was like, I don't, do I have, like, you get so paranoid that you have these stacks of papers mm-hmm. and you don't even know what to do with them. You're like, all right, I have all this stuff. I just need to know I need to find a VA and I don't know where they are, <laughs> but now I need to call them. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I had told, um, so like one of the things that I had aspired to, not there anymore. But one of the things <laughs> I aspired to, um, when, when I was in law school, I, I was applying for JAT um, because okay. I thought, how great is this that if I become a JAG, having had this experience and this knowledge to be able to talk to active service members on their way out yeah. and give them sort of a roadmap. Hey, before you leave, because it's so much easier to, to obtain this stuff while you're in than it is once you're out. Yeah. Make sure you have a copy of your DD-214. Make sure you have this. Make sure you have yeah. this. Make sure you have this. Make sure you mm-hmm. go and get your, you know, whatever. Put it all together so that, God forbid, five, ten years from now, something comes up that is related to this. You're so much ahead of the game as far as the paperwork and the documentation you need to have to support your application for disability. And no one's yeah. telling you guys that. No one's telling them like what the stuff is that they need to have before they step out. They are now. They're actually because of. I will say this much that that when I was getting out, I had uh, a lot of people on the ship. Hey, you got make sure don't lose that two fourteen. Don't lose that. Mm-hmm. My I was staying with my uncle back east. He's twenty eight years retired. Um, he was all about it. Like, hey, make don't lose this. Make do you have all your stuff? Make sure you got your stuff. Um, and I. I think though that's coming about because you're seeing these guys who th- they weren't told all those many years ago. They didn't, mm-hmm. they don't know what these forms are. They're just, you know, like I said, when, when you're in the moment you get in, you go to boot camp, they line you up. All right. Now for those who might get offended by this, this is what they tell you and they probably don't do it anymore, but it's nut to butt. You're, you're straight up. You're mm-hmm. right next to the person you're smelling them and they're smelling you. It's all kinds of mm-hmm. weird you're getting shot up, you're all these needles and you're told what to do, when to do it, where to go. And you just follow orders. You follow direction. So you get into that mindset and then you separate, you have to get out. And we won't even get into the cultural differences, which I have, Mm -hmm. I've looked into that. Um, But the legal ramifications and all this, what you're talking about with the paperwork, the red tape, and, and it can be extremely overwhelming for some guys that that get out and they're like wow i didn't think there was this much that went into it and yeah it really is like what do i have to do next because for the last four eight ten twenty years i've been following orders yeah so give me an order yeah like not no now you have to figure it out on your own (laughs) yeah yeah and and uh, there's and so and there are guys they can they can figure it out but then there are others that, that, that just can't they get they get yeah. into that set they get uh essentially it's institutionalized and and they don't know how to go about everyday life like you know just from again from my own perspective when i got out it was kind of like that i got i got kind of scared mm-hmm. i said I, did I fuck up? Did, did I, I don't know. I, maybe I should have stayed in, you know, cause yeah, 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 yeah. You, you get that set. Cause then you come back to where people are living oh. the everyday, you know, they, mm-hmm. they go to work nine to five, come home. They got their two and a half kids and their dog and their mm-hmm. white picket fence. And, and, and you kind of think like, all right, now how do I fit into this equation? Like what, what can yeah. I do? And, 
And, um, and that's why they are from, again, from my experiences, they're very uh, more invested into making sure, do you have a plan? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, um, again, going back to what you're saying with make sure you have all this paperwork lined up, have your medical records, have your dental, uh, dental records, two fourteens, all this jazz, mm -hmm. uh, have a plan on what you're going to do. I had, we had to do a, a checkout. We had this sheet and we had to check out with all these different people on board. People, mm -hmm. I was like, why do I need to see this person? But Hey, mm -hmm. you got to go talk to this person and sign the sheet. And mm -hmm. nearly every single one of them was like, Hey, you have a plan. What are you going to do? And and I did. I told him, I was like, hey, and my plan has changed since then. I won't lie. It's changed. Um, but I, I had an initial plan. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. I'm going to be here for X, X amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, I've, I said it, it's, at some point I was like, I got like a four year plan. That's, you know, yeah. at, you know, I, I'm going to handle school and do take care of all of that. Um, and, and like I said, with me, I haven't had to deal with like any, I haven't gone to the VFW. I haven't done anything like that. Um, so as far as what you've seen and, and just kind of, and I like the fact that you said that it, it didn't feel like work um, you yeah. know, when you're doing that. And I, and I think that's, that's one of the main things because it's you so you're dealing it's it's almost an interesting spot where you would be in because so you're you're looking at law but you're also dealing with people like it's a very mm -hmm. personal level whereas the, i think that's the difference in what you're doing now it's good how mm -hmm. i'm kind of hearing it and equating is that with the va and working with veterans you you've got a a face and a name to a case rather than a case number and things like that is that fairly accurate or how how would you describe that I mean, yes and no, because I could be doing what I would, would have wanted to do for veterans for injured workers, and I would have a face okay. and all that. Okay. Um, but I, I don't. I I dipped my toe into the plaintiff side of work with a firm that had like eighty to eighty-five percent of their business was defense work, which is what I do. Yeah. And the other, you know, ten to fifteen, whatever was plaintiff side work so you yeah. know, representing the injured worker um and i felt that i've always kind of had this mentality from law school you know when i wanted to do employment law that i wanted to represent the employer and not the employee and you know people used to say like oh you, you know you want to be the bad guy or whatever and, and mm, I, yeah. I understand what they're saying with that but to me I guess the way I rationalized it was uh, your Pepsi and I'm your attorney yeah and this person got injured uh, uh, at the job at a warehouse um, if I am their attorney and i'm telling you this guy's really hurt he needs surgery you're like yeah okay because that's what he's paying you to say you know the more treatment he gets the more money he gets the more money you get right but if i'm your attorney and i'm telling you this guy's really hurt he needs to get treatment you're paying me to protect your interests i'm protecting you right now by telling you this is not worth litigating this is not worth taking depositions of doctors or whatever like mm. that this guy is hurt you're gonna listen to me 
So I'm actually in a better position to help more employees if I'm on the inside right. than if I'm on the outside working one case at a time. Right, right. And on the flip side of that, having worked human resources um, in the Bronx yeah, uh, for a hospital that was unionized, I saw the same thing that I have an issue with in workers comp now that we were talking about earlier you know the the one kid that messes it up for everyone else yeah you yeah. know I my grandfather worked for the union I I at its core love what the union represents but there's always that handful of employees that believes that because they're part of a union or whatever like that like everything is adversarial everything is contentious everyone's out to get them mm -hmm. you know it's always us versus them this and the third and so when you know i would see someone get pulled in for a disciplinary proceeding um and the first thing that they're pulling is the race card or the gender card or whatever oh, okay. the case is and you're right them, blah, blah, whatever I wanted to be the face on the other side of the table to say, I'm not picking on you because you're a woman. I'm a woman. I'm not picking on you because you're Hispanic. I'm Hispanic. <laughs> I'm picking on you because you were late 37 times in the last three months. And right. That's a violation. Of po you know, like I wanted to balance that out, equate, you know, take, take those, sure. those sort of cards off the table because we're coming with the same. So yeah. This is not about, you know, the color of your skin. This is not about your gender. This is not about the position that you're working in because I grew up in that same neighborhood. I talk the same talk. I do the same stuff on the weekends, but I also know what the policies are. And yeah. Monday through Friday from eight to five, I follow them. And this is why we're having this conversation, you know? Right. And unfortunately, they've been able to get away with things like that because minorities women we're so underrepresented in the legal field and in these sort of positions that would give this disciplinary action that it can yeah. always feel like it's us versus them sure and so the more that i can infiltrate the better it is that i can one point out their biases uh, as far as they being the employer, like these are the things that you need to correct. These are, these are issues. Um, and you can trust me to give you that feedback because you've hired me to give you that feedback. But yeah. two, I can also protect the employer from the person that's going to try to take advantage, which is going to mess it up for the next person who actually does need whatever it is that they need. Yeah. So, well, you know? so, so how do you, so how do you figure that out then? You know what I mean? How do you figure, how do you figure out the, the, the real people from the scammers? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you, sometimes you don't, or sometimes you know, and you just don't have enough evidence to prove it otherwise. But um, is it like a gut feeling kind of thing? You just see them. You're like, ah, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> no, no, definitely. It's, it's usually more so like, the, the facts, the circumstances behind, okay. you know, like, for instance, um, I had a case that uh, I just litigated in January, and it started in October. In October, um, they filed two separate injury claims. 
which in and of itself should have been a red flag, but they filed two separate injury claims. And essentially the employee was claiming that he was injured in March on the job that he had gone out of work for three months or so that he came back to work in the beginning of July and that the same day that he came back to work, he suffered a new injury to similar body sites as his prior injury and that he had to go back out except None of this was brought up to the employer until after he had been terminated. Mm. And we found out that um, the initial injury that he was out for three months and came back that they were aware of, they were never made aware of the fact that this injury took place at home. As a matter of fact, he had been out for those three months on short-term disability and FMLA. Yeah. short-term disability wouldn't cover your lost wages and your medical bills if this is something that occurred at the workplace because that is the purview of workers' compensation law. Right. So the minute that I was informed that he had been out on short-term disability, my whole thought process and purpose was I need to get in touch with the short-term disability insurance carrier because there's no way when they first got this information that they didn't question him are these injuries the result of a motor vehicle accident are these injuries a result of an accident that took place at work those are the two main questions that mm-hmm. would like disqualify them yeah there would have been carriers aren't they would have been some like, questions. Yeah. Yeah. They're not yeah. running to like give you money. They're going to want to make sure that like this mm-hmm. is their responsibility, you know? Yeah. Um, and the more we started to get into it, I was finding, you know, he was testifying about stuff and I'm looking at the medical and it's just not matching up. Yeah. Um, he, he's saying that he injured this body part and that, and then the next time he says it again, he's added an extra part, body part, and taking something away. Um, and my employers were like adamant that it didn't happen. Nothing, nothing was reported. Nothing happened at the workplace. Something, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it came down to the wire, um, the, the day of the last hearing, that we were able to secure copies of the short-term disability claim file Mm. and about a week after the initial injury there was you know page like 67 and i'm like flipping through all these pages like (sighs) it has to be here like it has to be here and like on page 67 you see uh a note from the claim adjuster like initial contact with uh you know injured with the patient or whatever like that and phone call person says that he injured himself running to catch the bus after work and it was like (laughs) this is in line with what your what the initial urgent care report said urgent care report said the person said that they fell and tripped on the sidewalk 
his attorney was trying to make it seem as if a sidewalk is concrete and by concrete they meant the yard that he yeah. works in yeah um, he had he had uh on his initial claim form he had said that he tripped and fell uh coming off of a cigarette break but when he testified he said he tripped and fell after after checking a truck that was on yeah. the yard yeah you know there was all these just just little things there and gotcha. so you, you're looking at the facts of the case and you're like something's just not right adding up. It's yeah just, you know but workers compensation um is a lot like criminal law in the ideology that we would rather have 11 guilty men go free than one innocent man go to jail. Yeah. They would rather give money to someone who couldn't necessarily um, produce the, the, the proof and the evidence needed to support their claim rather than have someone who was serious who was actually injured not get the money so there's a lot of presumptions that are put in the law that benefit the employee and make it much harder for an insurance carrier to deny a claim like the amount of proof that the employee has to produce is very minimal and the amount of proof that the insurance carrier has to produce to overcome their proof is like yeah yeah it sounds like it's i i it i I mean i wouldn't say it's exactly like it but what it's it's reminding me of is like defamation cases um Mm -hmm. i i learned a little bit about that kind of recently um Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna see if i can remember all of it but it's extremely hard to win a defamation case. Like if, if mm-hmm. for some reason you say something about me, right. That I think is defamation It's it's false. So I bring a, a suit against you. I have to prove that it in fact defamed me in some way that I lost wages, this and this and yeah. that. There's a detriment, there's yes. a negative impact and, and it can't be true. Even like it, it can mm-hmm. be bad, but if it's true, then it's out the window because it's not defamation. It's just the truth and the truth hurts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's almost, it's weird that it, it's, I mean, I, obviously I don't know anything, but that, that's just kind of, whenever you were saying that, it, that's what my mind went to is just that it's, it's difficult. I mean, so if you think about why workers' compensation law was created in the first place, you know, you have to go back to when, like, people were working in factories and getting, like, nothing as far as wages yep. were concerned. And yeah. they would get injured. And your options were to continue to work through your injury or possibly lose your job, get fired. You know, there wasn't health insurance at these times or whatever like that. You had to have money to go to see doctors, all this kind of stuff. Like there were so many negative things. There just weren't any protections in place for someone who got injured doing their job. So that's why workers' compensation law came about. So at its core, it's always trying to protect the injured worker. And from a financial standpoint, 
it's their position that the employer or the insurance company or whatever like that is not going to be nearly at it. Like, you know, if you have one person who injured themselves and now they can't, they, they can't work and they're out a thousand dollars a month. Them bringing a fake claim, but getting that thousand, like they're not as injured as it was what they're saying they are. Yeah. Um, and the judge finds that they are and, and awards them the money. The insurance care having to pay out that $1,000 a month is not going to break us. You know, it's right. not the end of the world for us. Yeah. But if that person is really injured and the case gets denied, yeah. Not getting that thousand dollars a month could be the end of the world for them. It could yeah. mean homelessness. It could mean not being able to put food on the table for their family members. It could mean, you know, losing their cars and bills and, and not being able to get medical treatment or whatever. So like yeah. you're looking at the disparity and they're like, we'd much rather err on the side of the employee and give them money because yeah. the insurance company, you'll be okay. Yeah. versus, you know, not and have someone really end up destitute. So that's why, yeah. you know, again, it's a much harder, you know, our running joke as a, like an insurance defense attorney or an insurance, you know, a workers' compensation defense attorney is that um, And I think we lost the connection. Oh, oh wait, yeah. go ahead. You totally froze up there. You're going to have oh, to go no. back to uh, the running joke. What was the running okay. joke? <laughs> so the, the, the running joke for like an insurance uh, defense attorney or a workers' compensation defense attorney is that we rarely win. Our win yeah. is in limiting how bad we lose. Because like uh, nine times out of 10, the case is going to get established in favor of the employee. Yeah. So really what we're trying to do now is just like stop the bleeding. So, okay. you know, if you see these cases that you know are probably going to get established, especially the ones where like it's questionable, um, we're not sure that the person's really as injured. You're not sure that the injury occurred at work. Maybe it, they're they injured their, like, they really do have an injury. They really messed up their right knee, but maybe they messed up their right knee playing basketball on Saturday and yeah. waited until they got to work on Monday and then fell and reported this injury on their knee so that it would be covered by work as opposed yeah. to their, you know, private insurance or whatever, things like that. Um, you try to try to see that it's a lot of like chess in a sense, trying to yeah. see where the, the end game of these claims are to see which ones are the ones that you can try to like save a little bit of money by cutting them off. Yeah. Yeah. By offering settlement in advance early on before we get too far into it or by, you know, monitoring all of their medical, like a hawk. So that <laughs> the minute that you see that a doctor says this person could probably go back to work in a light duty capacity. Okay. We need a hearing. Cause right now this person's getting paid as if they're incapable of getting out of bed. And we want yeah. to incentivize them to go back to work by giving them less money. 
because yeah, they're yeah. already going to get less than what they were making. They're only going to get two thirds of whatever they were making within like our statutory limits. Yeah. And for someone that's a high wage earner, they're probably going to go back to work as soon as possible because they feel that difference. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're a police officer, you're making $4,000 a week and the maximum amount of money that you're going to get from workers' compensation is like $904 a week. <laughs> you're going back to work as soon as you possibly can, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. But if you're a dishwasher at a restaurant and you were making $200 a week and the minimum amount that we can pay at workers' comp is 150 yeah. You're only losing out on fifty bucks. Like yeah, maybe not a lot of incentive. <laughs> not a lot of incentive. Maybe I'll stay on the couch a couple extra weeks and you know watch TV and say I can't go back to work quite yet. My back, my neck, my knee, whatever. Yeah. Because what you know, fifty bucks, but you're not doing anything. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a lot of having to weigh out all these different factors to determine what the liability is for the insurance carrier, if this is the kind of case that we should try to settle. And that's, you know, coming full circle back to the things that I struggle with because I, as their attorney, have to be able to tell them this is a situation where it's better. So I just, uh, I just actually settled the case right now. And I, I'm always, I'm me. I'm always super blunt <laughs> with my insurance carriers. I, I give it I to have them no doubt. <laughs> as I see it because I just, I can't do anything else. So um, this person was doing construction. They were working on a scaffold. They fell, injured their arm, their leg, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there's, there's, three things that you need, the three basic factors for establishing a case. You have to have an accident that occurred at work or that somehow is connected to your work. Yeah. Um, The employer has to have been given proper notice of this accident so that they can file the claim and do right by you. Um, And there has to be a medical determination that your injuries were related to this accident. You know, right. if you fall, if you if you fall down the stairs, but you're claiming depression, we're like, well, what does <laughs> one have to do with the other? Fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for this guy, the uh, accident happened. People saw him fall. Mm-hmm. People saw him fall, so we kind of have the notice, like they're right. aware of the fact that he had this injury, and on its face you would think that his broken leg and his arm, whatever like that, were caused by his fall, so it should all fit. Right. Except when we looked at the hospital records, this guy's alcohol level was like 2.7. Whoa. It was something outrageous. Outrageous. I don't know he how was, anyone is functioning at 2.7. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid drunk. (laughs) And they, you know, he tried to say that, like, like he had a couple of beers to ease the pain on his way to the hospital. I I don't even remember what it was. It was just, 
he's like, I drink one to two beers <laughs> per day or whatever. Like, you're like, no, you don't. Like, you you drink like 12 packs a day. Like, for you to be able to, like you said, the function with yeah. that high of an alcohol level in your blood, like, yeah. you, you're a you're a in it to win it alcoholic <laughs> right you're not like a casual social drinker so freaking beer on that's that that's like pulling something out of game of thrones like hey give me the wine i'm you're gonna have to cut this out of me real quick yeah exactly <laughs> so you know from a legal perspective we're in a very good place to say like absolutely not this doesn't yeah like, this is not a workers comp injury this guy was drunk the the reason he fell was not because of the type of work he was doing. It's because he was drunk. Everything <laughs> yeah. else goes back to that. Um, and then the guy dipped. He just left. And really, no one knew where he was for like a year. A and whole year? I talked to uh, his attorney. He's like, I, we've been trying to reach out to him. Uh, we think he moved back to Poland. Like... Dipped. Yeah, like dipped, dipped, like left. And left then, the country. That's a hell of a dip. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe like um, a little less than three weeks ago, I think um, the attorney's office reached out and said, hey, we've located the, uh, we've located the guy. He is residing in Poland. That's not a barrier for him to continue his case especially since now, like, we have the ability to have people appear by phone, people appear by video. Right, So okay. where you're physically located is not a barrier to continuing a, a case if it originated here in New York. Um, yeah. So they're like, you know, are you guys interested in settling this claim? And I have a legal obligation to take it back to the insurance carrier. And I'm right. like, I don't think this claim is worth a dime. <laughs> I think that, you know, up and down, it's clear this guy was drunk. I think uh, he's been gone for a year. The, the, the medical bills that we had disputed, the, the court just like protectively uh, resolved them in our favor. We don't have to pay them. But it was just based on his like non-participation with and like the not prosecuting the claim further. So if he came back and said, I wanted to like litigate it, then we'd have to go through this all over again. And the issue for us was that the employer wasn't cooperative with us. We think because it's probably wasn't the first time this guy showed up drunk. We probably knew he was coming to work drunk, let it slide. And so like they didn't, they weren't responding to our inquiries. They weren't giving us the name of someone who would testify as to what took place that day. And like, we were really not having anything other than this hospital um, yeah. report it to, to, to defend ourselves with. Right. And so I said, listen, I don't, I don't think it's worth a dime, but I also remember the obstacles that we had leading up to what what would have been the big trial mm-hmm. with that the employer wasn't cooperating we didn't we weren't going to be able to produce a, a witness to testify so you know this guy was going to be able to say whatever and it would kind of be uncontroverted because we'd have no one to counter it 
Yeah. Um, and all we really have is this medical report. And if we have to like try to depose the doctors, you'll never get a doctor on a deposition if he works at a hospital because he's just all over the place. You know, oh, yeah, a doctor sure. that has his own practice, that's easier. But it, yep. you're, you're asking an emergency room doctor to set aside an hour to, to be deposed, like, forget about Good it. Luck. You're never going to get them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I said, you know, what do you want to do? And she was like, you have authority up to $25,000 to settle. And I'm just like, angry i'm like i'm so angry about the fact that like that's even a consideration like like you're gonna offer this guy how much so i said okay you know what i'm gonna do i don't think it's worth more than five but so as to because they were asking for 20 they were asking for twenty thousand. yeah and she gave me up to twenty five thousand. and i was like i don't even think it's worth five thousand but so as to not offend them uh-huh. I'm going to start at like 7,500 and I'm going to give them, I'm going to lay out all the reasons why this is like a Christmas gift in July, <laughs> take it or leave it, you know, uh, which sucks because I'm not a bluffer. Like I'm not a bluffer. <laughs> You're not a poker and, player. You can't no, do it. No, <laughs> I'm not a poker player at all. In most of my negotiations, I like, I rely on the fact that I, I have really good rapport with uh, the attorneys on the other side. Oh yeah. So yeah. I'll like usually tell them like, Hey, like I have this much money, but can you cut me as like slack? And like, can we come in a little bit under? So I look like I saved them a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for the dealings you know, of what? lawyers under the yeah, table. It's, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. Right. Uh, Right. So in this case, if, if, if I had cared, if this was a case that like really I thought, you know, was going to go somewhere, I might have said like, OK, I know you guys are asking for 20. Um, like, can we do like 18.5 and I'm coming in like just under 20 and like I look like a hero or you know, something like that. Yeah. But for this, I was like, no. Like, so I wrote an email like, hey, we're willing to give you 7,500. We're not going to accept liability for the claim. We're not going to pay any of the medical bills. This is a one-time payment. This closes the case in its entirety. Take it or leave it. Your guy was dumb drunk. Like, if we have to litigate it, we're litigated. Like, I laid it all out. Obviously, in a more professional terminology, but right, that was right. the point. Um, and they came back and said, claimant's going to accept the 7500 Now I look like a rock star. Because wow. they were trying to give this person 25000 And I'm like, hi. I just saved you like 17.5. Feel free to like throw some my way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I wouldn't blame but, you for doing that though, honestly. I'm like, hey, yo. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's, it's just like, it's like, how do I rectify in my mind that we're giving this guy 75? I don't even think it's worth a claim. Yeah, yeah. But also I understand for them, 7,500 is a drop in the bucket if it means that this guy can never come back and they True. never have to hire us to live, to defend them yeah. in this case ever again. Because yeah. 7,500 is probably what they would have paid for like one trial or one hearing. Like yeah. if I had to take all the testimony and blah, 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 like I don't think my rates are cheap. So like they were probably yeah. going to end up paying, like their mind, they're like, we're going to pay it somewhere. So sure. we can Might pay well, it to this yeah. guy once and never have to deal with him again, 
or we could pay it to this firm and it'll be the one of many. Yeah. You know? So what's that like then? Like, well, I mean, it sounds like you've already kind of laid it out, but there's so much nuance. There's a lot of gray area that I'm hearing with this. It's not so cut and dry. There are, I'm sure there's just like, all right, yeah, quick and easy, simple. But with all these different kinds of cases with the different nuance and the, and the gray areas, um, not just with going, I know we mentioned with the morality of things and you, you wrestling with that, but navigating this gray area, just sounds like an absolute pain in the ass you know and so what what what, when you did it take you long to kind of navigate these new waters did it like what was that like trying to learn this because it's one thing to to read the books to study and do your schooling Mm -hmm. and be studious and whatnot but then what is it when you take that and in, in in practical experience now you actually have to figure this out on your own you know what i mean well I wish I had known when I was in law school that this was the route that I would be taking at least, you know, for my immediate after graduation, because uh, one of the courses that they offered is like um, negotiating and settling contracts and and something like that. And I I wish I had taken that because I feel like there was probably that's a skill set that I did not have coming into this. Um, mm. I don't necessarily think I have still, and I've been doing it for four years now. <laughs> it's, um, it's a lot of me like watching others that I respect and people that have been doing it for a while and seeing how they do it. Yeah. It's a lot of uh, relying on people running stuff by, you know, luckily attorney client privilege extends to like an attorney asking another attorney for advice. So it's mostly been uh, surrounding myself with people that have been doing this, whether a couple of years or 20 years, but people that I trust that I can rely on that I know will give me good advice. Um, As well as obviously like learning humility and not being afraid to go to my employer, whomever that may be, and say, I need help. I don't Mm. know how to do this. I don't know how to respond to this. I, can you review this before I send it out? Um, I'm uncomfortable with this. can you assign someone to shadow with me or, or, you know, Mm. mentor me on this situation? Yeah. Um, Or, you know, ultimately like, can you reassign this to somebody else? I I don't feel comfortable handling this particular thing. And, uh, you know, my current firm, we have a couple of clients that are, uh, require more attention, uh, more fine handling. Mm. um, And they're big, clients and 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 uh their accounts that we put a lot into to make them happy yeah um and those accounts they normally try to keep with like a senior partner or a partner you know someone that's been doing this for a while and yeah but i i I must have been maybe two weeks in and i got thrown into a case oh wow um and i was like okay (laughs) i had heard so much about you know these types of cases and i was 
told that I wouldn't have to worry about them for like months. And here I am like handling one already. Yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, understanding where I'm at and not being afraid to say, okay, I, I'm going to need some, someone's going to have to walk me through this to make sure I don't screw this mm. up. Um, the flip yeah. side of that though is uh, maybe underestimating yourself too much sometimes and, and okay. not really valuing like every time that I've switched from one firm to another firm I'm reminded of like how much I've learned and, and grown with each of these firms um, when it comes to like you know salary negotiations and things like that and it's, yeah. like, it's a hard thing to wrestle with feeling comfortable asking for more money. X amount of money <laughs> yeah. and having to defend why you're worth this amount of money. Right. Um, and that, you know, the, that leads into so many other things, you know, the, uh, especially really prevalent it, with women and minorities in professional careers, the imposter syndrome, where they feel like mm. everything that they've done up until that point has been out of luck. And like, if someone mm. finds out that like, they really don't know as much as like people think they know or whatever, like they have this like sense of like, I'm a fraud and I, I've only gotten here off of like my good graces or whatever. Yeah, and like having yeah. to wrestle with those sort of demons and inner thoughts and, and, and reminding yourself. So one of the things that I do, um, whenever I have like a good outcome on a case or something like that, I like try to write a quick post-it note about it and put it in a folder. And that's like my 2018 there you folder, go. Yeah. 2019 folder. So mm -hmm. that when like my reviews come, when I'm like looking for updating my resume or talk, you know, I can point to these specific things that I did well yep. as like uh, remind myself, like you, you're worth this, you're worthy. Yep. Um, and, and also just like, taking the time out to like see other people's work and see what they did and see what worked in it. So when someone has like a good outcome on a case, so they want an appeal or whatever like that, you know, my firm sends that out for everyone to review. Um, some people do, some people don't. Uh, when I have free time, I do try to review and see what somebody argued what they're you know how they formed whatever they formed what were the facts whatever like that so that if i'm in a similar situation you know i'm learning from what people sure. do right as well as what people do wrong yeah i i gotta i gotta say i i hear that as far as um basically evaluating yourself um i had to do that at a fairly younger age when i was still working at fedex we would have like quarterly and yearly reviews <clears throat> and like my first year as a, a quality assurance clerk. Um, it's, it's so strange because I consider myself a, a relatively humble person. Uh, I would say I'm in the same boat as you. A lot of times I actually get uncomfortable, you know, bragging about mm -hmm. myself. It's like, ah, I don't I ain't, nah, I'm good. I don't, I don't like to do that. Um, but that year it's like I had so much confidence in what I was doing and I went, I went into that review and I told my manager, I said, you're supposed to grade yourself and then you give it to them and then you kind of go back and forth and you're basically negotiating mm -hmm. these grades. Mm -hmm. And 
I gave myself fours and fives out of five. You know what I mean? Like I, I was giving myself fives. I was like, mm-hmm. I kicked ass this year. Mm-hmm. I know I did. And, um, uh, he agreed with me that I did, uh, but he brought a lot of my grades down mm-hmm. for the simple fact his reasoning was there's always more room for improvement. For yeah, right? exactly. And I said, I, and I don't remember saying this, but thinking back on it, I was like, that's true. But I feel like I can still grow from a five to a six. (laughs) 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 But I mean, you know, it is what it is. That was umpteen some years ago now. But Mm -hmm. what what you were talking about with the class that you were talking about, it sounds very, very much like a a comm class that I took called Conflict Negotiation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, there was a lot of interpersonal conflict and negotiation that we dealt with but we mm-hmm. also dealt with uh, professional conflict and negotiation and things along those lines and i do think it's a, it's a i think it's one of those skills that if you don't have it it's extremely difficult to cultivate mm-hmm. um to actually practice it it's one of those things some people just have it and they and i think that's why they become litigators and lawyers and and they get into big corporation business because they, they can just do it and yeah. and they have that kind of poker face um i'm with you i i suck i can't poker face to save my life um like if i'm trying to play a a, a prank or a joke on somebody i can't <laughs> i can't keep a straight face i think this shit's hilarious <laughs> and i'm gonna laugh so you know uh i feel that though but you know i i gotta say man like just listening to your story right now and the things that you've gone through um i i man if i had a hat on i'd take it <laughs> off to you because uh it just sounds like you you are you absolutely learn you're learning a lot you know i mean obviously know a lot more than i do um and i really do appreciate everything that you're doing now everything that you're learning and if you ever get in with the va um that would be awesome. I would appreciate you that much even more because I do believe that that's something that uh, veterans need more of, I think. Yeah. Uh, I tell people all the time, uh, we are really the best 1% in this country. And I am mm-hmm. t- I'm, I'm, I'm bragging on myself there because uh, it's I've, – and I've looked into it. I've studied things like this uh, for school in the past. Um, it's, we're in a voluntary military right now. Uh, there's yeah. not, people aren't just, it's nine 11 happened. And the, the amount of people that signed up were mm-hmm. enormous, but now it's, it's kind of fallen down again. And it's, it's just, it's crazy. Like the, the, the culture in and of itself is changing. And I know the, this whole litigation stuff is confusing and, and mm-hmm. just to hear someone like you, you, you're going after it, you're learning, uh, cause it can get really gray. You know, there's a lot of weeds that you mm-hmm. have to like sift through that mm-hmm. obviously you, you've told a number of stories already. Um, so I appreciate you. I know I've taken up a good amount of your time already. I know you have other things to do. It's getting a little bit later over there. So yeah. I will say I'll let you go. But again, Liz, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure. I'm happy to uh, talk about where I've come, how much I've learned. Um, And yeah, I mean, who knows where this is going to take me. And if I ever get into a position that I can be of more benefit, I'd love to come back again.
I, and you know, you are always welcome. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if, you, if you need a place, I'll, I'll get a Skype, I'll get a Zoom, I don't care. We'll, we will definitely make this happen, Liz. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us. Thank you, Liz, and everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Bye.